comfort my people, says your God. To bring comfort doesn't merely mean to make comfortable. Uh, you can be comfortable without having been uncomfortable. But to give comfort indicates a situation of discomfort, of grief and sadness, or of physical or psychological pain, or of loneliness, some situation that cries out for relief, for remedy, for comfort. Hell is not an issue that is much cared about by much of the evangelical church today, at least in America. I mean, the American church has elections to win and fiscal policy to influence. We really don't have time to worry too much about hell. In his book, The Letter to the American Church, Eric Metaxas chastises the church for Great Commission, which he says is not making sure that the will of the people is done. Who has time to care about alienation from God or an eternal hell? We've got important things to attend to. And a pastor could empty his sanctuary really quickly if people ever got a whiff that he actually believed in hell and thought that was the primary danger that people faced. And yet for all of hell's importance in the Bible's message, the Bible does not say very much about hell. And what it does say is shadowy and murky. But what it says is enough to give us the idea that it is a place of discomfort. Of grief and sadness. Of physical and psychological pain. Of crushing loneliness. And hell is not only the punishment of those who live alienated from God and deliberately do so. God who is the source of all blessing, of all goodness, of all life, of all pleasure. But hell is the lot of all those who, in the words of the old hymn, make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come. John's account of the crucifixion is a short account. But what it says is important. And so for a while more, we'll linger at the foot of the cross. This is the word of God from John chapter 19, verses 23 through 30. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. In order that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. 
So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, today in this this awful scene, this hellish scene, we stand on holy ground. Fill us, Father, with your Holy Spirit. And help us to see what Jesus has done for us. And Father, enliven our stony hearts that we might respond to him with faith and love. Amen. When he was crucified, Jesus was deprived of every comfort so that he could be for us the God of all comfort. He was deprived, John tells us, of the comfort of his clothing, he was unclothed. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes. You know, I I think that most of us can endure being unclothed in a medical situation. I don't think any of us really likes it, but we can endure it. We tolerate it because we believe that those people uh, in front of whom we are unclothed are acting in our interests for our good. But even then, it's viscerally hard. We, we learn to suppress our, our natural sense not to allow that to happen. Because to be naked is to be vulnerable. You know, the, the thought of unexpectedly coming face to face with an intruder in your home is a terrifying thought. But the thought of coming unexpectedly face to face with an intruder when you've just stepped out of the shower increases the terror a thousandfold. And our visceral loathing for nakedness goes back to the garden. 
We're told in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25 that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame because at that point they'd done nothing wrong. There was no sin. There was nothing to fear from one another or from God. But then we read further, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin brought the awareness of and the fear of being naked. And now they have this sense that they must hide and cover up. They've got an overwhelming sense to hide from God. And they need to hide from one another and not just because of their shame. You see, each now has seen the sin of the other. And that tells them something about the other, tells the man something about the woman and the woman something about the man. That, that he, that she is capable of evil and I have to protect myself. As he goes to the cross, Jesus of Nazareth is stripped bare by and in front of those who hate him and wish him ill. John doesn't report the mocking the other gospel writers tell us about. But he reports that those who took his clothes, those who crucified him, now throw dice for them. Right before his dying eyes, throw dice for the clothes that they've taken for who will get them. Jesus was deprived of the, of the scant comfort of clothing, of covering. And yet tragic as this scene is, it's not a tragic accident. John tells us that this scene plays out words spoken by the psalmist in Psalm 22 and verse 18. They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. When Jesus was crucified, he was deprived of every comfort. We read that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother. When Jesus said that, behold, your son was not a reference to himself. 
but to, but to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John styles himself throughout this gospel. Speaks of himself in the third person. You know, there are many commentators who focus on the idea here that, that Jesus provides for Mary in his dying hour by effectively making John her son in his place. Jesus provides for her a more congenial home setting for we've learned in chapter 7 that his own brothers didn't believe in him. And while that may be true, Jesus' brothers would come to believe in him. One of them, James, would write the New Testament book that bears that name. Of no doubt that in the hour of his death, Jesus had a tender concern for his mother. But there's another side to what happens here. That, that Jesus, by doing what he does, essentially orphans himself on the cross. Jesus is crucified as a relatively young man, 33, and unmarried. I've read reports that dying young single men will often, at the time of their death, cry out for their mothers. It's the case especially when trauma precedes death. Whether that trauma is from a mining accident or a minefield. There's something primal in the comfort of mother. Mother is the one who first comforts skinned knees and broken hearts. Most of Jesus' disciples had scattered out of fear. And John alone is there with the women. And Jesus divests himself of his last earthly comfort. Woman, this is now your son. In an unfathomable mystery, when God became man, the weakness of his creatureliness was not an illusion. And as a baby in all of his humanity, he had learned of God at his mother's knee. The psalm which John quotes and the other gospel writers quote other portions of says, yet you brought me out of my mother's womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. But all of that comfort is gone now, swept away in one declaration. Woman, behold your son. Jesus orphans himself on the cross. When he was crucified, Jesus was deprived of every comfort. Not only every human comfort, but every comfort. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
He was thirsty. John says, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled and yet there's no quote here. Some have seen in this a reference to Psalm 22 in verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. That is certainly not impossible. The response to his words, I thirst, is deeply cruel. The they that is referred to here are certainly the four soldiers who have crucified him. Matthew tells us that when they took Jesus to the place of crucifixion, they offered him wine mixed with gall to drink. Historians and scholars tell us that that was meant to be an act of mercy. It was offered to those who were condemned to crucifixion, was supposed to have an anesthetic effect. And Jesus had refused it. What did they think? Did they think that that was bravado on Jesus' part? Were they insulted that he spurned their mercy? Is that the reason why they responded as they did when he said from the cross, I thirst? Some commentators uh, say that What they offered to Jesus was an effective thirst quencher. I do not know where they get that idea. You know how hot it's been this past week. Some of you may have had to work outside. I hope not too many. You would not come in from outside in this heat, parched, and say, I think I'll get a big glass of vinegar. And that's what this was, vinegar, pure and simple. You know what vinegar does when you put it in your mouth. It makes your mouth pucker and and salivate and prickle. But it wasn't just vinegar. It was vinegar, we're told, lifted up on a stalk of hyssop. And hyssop, you know, has a culinary use. It's an astringent. It dries your mouth out. If you've ever had very dry wine, you know what the feeling is like. Giving a thirsty man vinegar and hyssop was about as cruel as you could be. Why would they do such a thing? I don't know. Maybe it was a mocking revenge for his refusal for their mercy in offering him the wine and the gall. And yet I think that to focus on Jesus' physical thirst here would be to miss the point. When Jesus said, I thirst, he was referring, I think, to something other than merely his mouth feeling parched. John quotes portions of Psalm 22. The other gospel writers quote other parts. Matthew and Mark quote the opening line of that psalm, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? What does it feel like to be devoid of the presence of God and to be sensible of being devoid of it? And let me tell you that if you are devoid of the presence of God and you become sensible of it, that's a mercy. It's a mercy that you recognize your deprivation. But what would it feel like 
to be deprived of the presence of God and be sensible to it, well, I'll tell you what I think it feels like. I think it feels like thirst. David writes in Psalm 42, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Psalm 63, he writes, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And in Psalm 143, the enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me or I will be like those who go down to the pit. So that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. This was no deprivation of a mere earthly comfort. A thirst that mere water could slake. Friends, what does hell feel like? I think it feels like thirst. In Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he presents it this way. So the rich man called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. When he was crucified, Jesus was deprived of every comfort, human and divine, so he could be for us the God of all comfort. He was unclothed so that it could be said of us. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. He was orphaned so he could say to us, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you so that we would have the right to become the children of God. He thirsted so that he could say to us, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. It, it grieves me that the evangelical church in America today is about as faithless as I have ever seen it. They piddle with the politics of the passing hour and set aside the commission of Christ to call the naked to come and be clothed to call those estranged and alienated from God to come and be born anew as the children of God 
to call the thirsty to come and drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. Jesus was crucified. He was deprived of every comfort, human and divine, so he could be for us the God of all comfort. Has Christ become the God of all comfort for you? If you find yourself all the time angry and agitated, dissatisfied and disgruntled, could it be that it's because you're following the rock stars of the evangelical world today into their idolatry? You're looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and things that can never fulfill or satisfy? It may be because you yourself are headed for hell. And the dissatisfaction, the agitation, the fear, the hunger, the thirst, in that you're never satisfied are but the light pangs of what you will experience forever. Christ came to deliver from hell. And he has accomplished it. It is finished. He was unclothed for you. So you could be clothed and not be found naked. He was orphaned for you. So that the merely religious but deeply alienated from God could become the children of the living God. He suffered deep thirst in his soul. So that he could say to you, come and drink without cost from the springs of the water of life for I have paid. It is finished. Is he the God of all comfort for you? Do you hear him call? Will you come? Father, as we look on this scene, give us grace. Father, give us grace to be restored to what you created us for, what you sent your son into the world to redeem people for. Oh, Father, by your mercies, may we be among them. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.